May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. It was about 2009, I think, when I stopped burning CDs altogether. By then, my phone was becoming my MP3 player, and I had a car that I could plug into through an aux cable, though now my phone can invisibly connect to everything from my stereos to my water heater, and it accesses the infinite musical galaxy of Spotify. Infinite, excepting Garth Brooks. Garth, we miss you. But when I drive my truck, a Nissan Frontier that's old enough to know better, I am brought back to simpler times where forethought and deliberation provided me with my music. My Frontier boasts only a CD player. I pulled three big books of my CDs out of the attic after I bought it, their weight and tangibility, a charming antiquity at this point. You might guess the problem here. I am stuck, basically, in the musical tastes of my peak CD-making age of about 18 to 23 years old. <laughs> and this is how, my friends, I admit to you, I confess to you, I found myself driving to an appointment this week in my truck listening with a mixture of amused nostalgia and deep, deep shame <laughs> to an album by a group named DC Talk. A few laughs, this is good, okay. If you were my wife, you knew DC Talk only because you had a couple of nice but weird friends in college who would only listen to contemporary Christian music. If you're like me, you were one of those nice but weird fr friends who had a time in life of only listening to contemporary Christian music. For the uninitiated, DC Talk was arguably, I say, the biggest name of that insular world. Now, <laughs> she tries to console me, right? Everyone has things that they are embarrassed about loving at some point. Right? In life, MC Hammer, professional wrestling, glamour shots. But there's something really peculiar to this thing that's wrapped up in this for me. And finding this album and putting it in and finding that nearly 15 years dormant, that you still know every word. And remembering that feeling of believing every word that your understanding of God as a 16-year-old could be evoked by a song. It makes me wonder what it would be like to have a catalog of experiences or songs or images that could trace the development of your faith. The smell of an old church, the pastor's embrace, the sunburns and cicadas of a summer camp. These moments in time leading you somehow here and changed. Because we do change in the life of faith. If it's anything that does not grow or changes like anything else in life, it's dead, inert, 
It is that dusty glamour shot on the wall of your home. So how do we evolve in the faith? Are there common threads to all of us, not just me and you, but something in our stories that seem like we've all been here at a point? The writer of Hebrews today traces this development, not of his own faith, but of the Jewish people. And aside about Hebrews, I heard in a church once a lector say, a reading from the letter of Paul to the Hebrews, um, which is about as wrong as you can get in describing this book. <laughs> um, because first of all, no one knows who wrote Hebrews, but it wasn't Paul, almost certainly. Um, also, it's not a letter like the others. It's not addressed to people like the others. Um, it's, it's more of a sermon, an exposition. And it's not to the Hebrews, it's written about the Hebrews by a Christian who is in that point in time trying to understand this great shift of worshiping Jesus and how he fits, how he naturally might bring to fulfillment the Jewish faith. In particular, what he looks at is the sacrificial system and the wrath of God. So, let's start at the beginning. Very early Old Testament with a classic lynch mob story from the Bible. Book of Joshua, chapter 7. Israel has just suffered a minor military defeat. The Israelites' loss of morale, their melting hearts in battle, as it's said, are unambiguously interpreted as the wrath of God at work against them. If the Israelites fail in battle, someone out there must be acting unrighteously. God provides a convenient lottery to determine just who that unrighteous person is. The lot falls to a man named Achan. And all Israel, says in scripture, picks up stones to bludgeon him to death. In ganging up against someone else, they create unity and peace among themselves. Setting aside actual stones, does this start to sound familiar? Achan dies, and so God's wrath turns from them, the scripture says. And of course it does. James Allison, who's a theologian, writes, the shifting patterns of fear and mutual recrimination which had riven the people have been overcome by their triumphant and enthusiastic unanimity. From their perspective, it feels as though peace has been given to them. This is, in fact, peace in the way the world gives it. The peace which comes from unanimity and righteous hatred of an evildoer. But it is misperceived by the participants as peace flowing from the divinity, thanks to the right sacrifice having been offered. Follow so far. Time goes on. The sacrifice works just as well when it's an animal stand-in for the guilty humans, not because the animal is innocent, but because the guilt of the humans can be put onto it. The priest would take this animal and then sprinkle its blood on the people to protect them from God's wrath. It turns into liturgy, 
a powerful catharsis that creates the same feelings of unanimity and righteousness for the people participating in it. Do you realize that there is no quicker way to unite a group of people than behind a shared enemy? I don't think for us here today, I don't think it go, does us any good to say, well, we've moved beyond these old mentalities because we don't believe that God is wrathful. Of course we think that the wrath visited on Achan is human wrath. Human wrath and our justification for it is a reality. Removing God's name from it does not change the circumstances that we live in, our wrathful world. I think it's clear that we have not moved past it. And we find all sorts of ways to justify it, divine or not. From the violence necessary to keep us safe, the sacrifice of the environment for our ease and comfort, to the everyday wrath that we kindle with our huddle of friends against the immigrants, the native, the rich, the poor, the conservative, the liberal, the old, the young, the idea we are against, whatever threats we might perceive, we return to that same system. There is one exception in our tradition. The writer of Hebrews calls Jesus the great high priest. When we call Jesus that in the liturgy, we're quoting scripture. But this priest, instead of finding yet another animal to place the community's shame upon, instead of finding a scapegoat for the community's problems, this priest put himself intentionally into the sacrificial system. The only innocent there ever was, placing himself voluntarily in the way of our wrath. And by doing so, he reveals it for what it is, this system, that it's murder. This is not a God who needs to be appeased by blood, but a system by which humans have made peace among pockets of ourselves by our mutual hatreds. When I listened to contemporary Christian music solely as a teenager, I did so because the outside world of the, the unsaved was dangerous, corrupting, something to shore off from with like-minded individuals. But this is not peculiar to that subset of our society or being a teenager. How can we be free from these most ancient of patterns? The writer of Hebrews gives the catalog of images and experiences of a faith developing. Brad read it earlier. It used to be something that could not be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that not another word would be spoken to them. How important it is to start at the beginning and recognize yourself in that place of wrath. We're all there in some way or another. We are all somehow that kid blocking herself off from others through sacrifice, perpetuating the wrath in the world. 
But that body and blood is no longer sprinkled onto us to protect us from wrath. We take it in, the saving victim who stepped into the place of our shame and broke the system. And when we take this in, we become ready to undo the world's wrath in the same way. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast.